From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Yvonne Villarreal. And I'm your other host, Mark Olson. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. And Mark, this week, you're talking to a filmmaker we've been hearing a lot about recently. That's right. Lee Isaac Chung, the writer and director of Minari. It's a semi-autobiographical, deeply personal story about a Korean-American family the moves to rural Arkansas. The movie won some prizes when it premiered at Sundance last year. More recently, it was nominated for both Globe and SAG Awards. And all this attention has been a big surprise to Lee. I didn't expect any of this to happen. Obviously, for it to happen during these times has tempered it in a way um, and, and made me feel very sober about it. But at the same time, I mean, just, just to have these opportunities... I am that kid from Arkansas who grew up in a trailer home. So it is unreal. He sounds like a really humble guy. Mark, you know what I'm going to ask. Can we watch Minari at home yet? You can. Thanks to the distributor, A24, they have their own screening platform you can watch the movie on. And then it's going to be on some other VOD platforms later on in the month. Well, I'm definitely going to be adding it to my list. Uh, Your conversation with Lee Isaac Chung is coming up in just a couple minutes. For your awards consideration, the HBO Max original series, The Flight Attendant, nominated for two Golden Globe Awards, including Best TV Comedy, starring Golden Globe and SAG Awards nominee Kaylee Cuoco. The Flight Attendant, now streaming on HBO Max. Before we get to Mark's chat with Lee Isaac Chung, the writer and director of Minari, let's turn the mic over to our awards writer, Glenn Whip, and he's talking about another movie that's been on my list. So many, many awards minutes ago, back when we were just starting this season's socially distanced journey, I talked about seeing Nomadland at a drive-in theater that was set up specially at the Rose Bowl. And now, like five months later... On Friday, you can see Nomadland 2. I mean, this is the movie that's likely to win the Oscar for Best Director, and it could also win Best Picture, too. It's a really special movie. It stars Frances McDormand as a widow who leaves her dying town, and she hits the road, packs her possessions or what she can fit into a van, and she just starts traveling, and she finds community and compassion and like some spiritual meaning among a group of fellow travelers called nomads who have kind of turned their backs on materialism and, you know, have hit the road too, looking for kind of a different way, a different life. Chloe Zhao is the director and her last movie was the beautiful Western drama, The Writer. And she wrote, she directed, she edited, and she produced Nomadland, which means she's probably going to be nominated for four Oscars this year. And again, I think she's a shoe-in for the director prize. It's a poignant movie, dare I say profound. It's also funny, too. I've I've kind of painted it as something of of a somber journey, but it's not. It's anything but. And even though it doesn't, romanticize life on the road, I have to say that 
I mean, in these quarantine times, there's a vicarious joy to be found in watching all those wheels in the movie in motion in a journey toward meaning. Again, Hulu on Friday. Check it out. I think you're really going to love it. I can't believe it's been five months. Like, I feel like it was just yesterday when we were listening to Glenn talk about his drive through adventure. That's wild to me. Yeah, I was I was at that same drive-in screening, and I can't believe it was that long ago. Have you gone for any drives recently? Th- no. No, no. Well, time in quarantine can be slow, or it can come at you fast, as we just learned. Like, I can't believe five months has gone by. But now, here's Mark's conversation with Lee. Tell me about your experience at Sundance. What was that like going there to premiere the film and then winning both the grand jury and the audience prize? I mean, those are the two top prizes at the festival. Uh, yeah, it, it's crazy because that experience feels so long ago at this point with uh, the pandemic and everything. But yeah, those were happy times. I didn't expect to win. So just to come out of there with with both of those prizes, it was pretty mind-blowing. And now Minari is actually the fourth fiction feature that you've directed and it's based in the story of your own upbringing, your childhood. And I, I feel like that's the story a lot of filmmakers would tell as their first movie. Do you feel like for some reason you were holding back or you were sort of avoiding telling this story until now? Yeah, you know, it, there's no simple reason for why I waited this long. Um, I, I definitely wanted to tell this story for a long time. From probably the beginning, uh, when I was in film school, I I already had this idea that I would make a film about uh, my time in Arkansas as a kid. But I don't know. There are all sorts of things that happen um, to upset your plans. For me, you know, I, I made my first film in Rwanda, and it was a film that I felt like I could make at the time, and that circumstances uh, let it happen. And I just kind of let myself go in my career in that way, just not pushing things and just doing things when the opportunities would arise. And it wasn't until I think my daughter was born in 2013. And I started to think that, okay, maybe if I don't actually push uh, to make this story, then it's not going to happen. And maybe I won't even be able to make another film after this. So why don't I try to make a a big push to try to make something like this. And that went into the writing, the process, and all these different factors that uh, helped me in 2018 to finally churn out a script for this. And then to get it financed and greenlit really quickly, actually, and, and out into the world by Sundance of 2020. And tell me more about those sort of like early stages. I'm so interested in the idea that you felt like you were maybe at a point in your career where you weren't sure if you were even going to get to make another movie And to think from what feels like it might have been a low point to have that turn into your greatest success, that I mean, that's a wonderful story. There's something really inspiring there. What was that like when you were at that moment where you weren't even sure if you were going to make another movie? It was interesting. Um, I think I just had to grow up a lot, to be honest. Like, this is a story about my parents and a family in which this character of Jacob, played by Stephen Young, is obviously dragging his family through this crazy dream of starting a farm And I felt like I was doing something very similar with trying to make films. And I think even myself, I needed to go through failures and I needed to go through a reckoning of my most base level. uh, What does it mean for me to be alive? What does it mean for me to be human? That maybe I hadn't contended with until I had finally hit my 40s. To answer, it's been a very difficult journey, to be very honest. 
Um, but at the same time, I think that that difficulty needed to happen for me to tell this story in an honest way that maybe hopefully resonates with some people when they watch it. To give you another story, there was a moment before I got the green light from A24 that it looked like none of our schedules were going to line up and that I, I wasn't going to be able to make this film. I had kind of decided if that happens, maybe that's it. And I'm just going to stick with full-time teaching because I was a professor at that time. And something about that moment felt like maybe the barn burning, you know, in the film where, where everything is collapsing. And I was there standing next to my wife and daughter uh, as I'm thinking about all these things. And I just felt a sense of gratitude somehow washing over me that even despite losing everything, I still have them. You know, that's an emotion that definitely carried me into making this film and, and making those last moments of the film as well and, and why this film is so deeply personal to me. I have to say, the not to spoil anything, but when the barn burns at the end of the movie, that was one of the most like terrifying, sort of anxious-making sequences I've seen in movies in quite some time. And obviously, this is not a horror film. This is not a thriller. This is like a gentle family story. And so to suddenly like just feel that like the bottom drop out like that, that that sequence is terrifying. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm glad you feel that way as a filmmaker. That uh, uh, that somehow that film. It took you to that place. We wanted it to be that way. We we wanted the film to feel like something like that could be inevitable within this story. Um, and you just feel this looming sense that something's going to happen. And that when it does, you're in, you're so in love with this family that it feels like the stakes are incredibly high. Um, so I, I'm glad that scene was scary for you. It certainly was for for us as we were, we were filming that scene as well. And tell me just about the writing of the story, was it difficult for you to kind of make the decisions as far as how much of your family story to tell, like how much is or isn't true? Was was that difficult for you to kind of wade through? Um, it was very difficult in the sense that I know that my parents are private people and I didn't even tell them that I was making this film until I was in the editing room with it um, after I had, I had shot it because I was just so scared um, about what they would say. But yeah, my decision with, with how to write it, I started off by uh, just writing down a lot of memories. I, I wrote down about like 80 memories in this exercise that I was doing. I had read this quote from Willa Cather in which she said, uh, her life really began when she stopped admiring and started remembering. And I felt like all the stories I had been telling, I've, I've been trying to emulate different films that I loved. And uh, that really spoke to me, her quote, that maybe instead of that, I'd really need to turn inward and turn to my experiences. I set out, I wrote all these memories and I could see this story taking shape. And what I felt was that those elements, the visual elements could serve as like the details in the story and that I could introduce um, like these grander narratives of you know, pursuing the American dream and, and pursuing farming and, and trying to be someone in the frontier, um, assimilation, all these different ideas to let them carry through all these little details in a way. Um, so, so that was the writing process. It took me about a year to write the script, I'd say. Very intensely private and, and uh, torturous work, I got to say. And now, is it fair to say that the character of David, played by little Alan Kim, in the movie, that that's you? Like, is that sort of like your perspective on the story? It certainly is meant to feel like it comes from my memories um, and from my perspective as a child, someone re wrestling with these things. But 
In a way, I, I find myself in all the characters in some way. I know writers uh, say this sort of thing a lot, uh, but there's a lot that's personal within every person. And I, I'd say Jacob in particular, the, the father character, I feel a lot of myself in him. And then with the way that I wrote David, I've had friends come up and tell me, you know, David really acts a lot like your daughter, really acts like Livia. And she she's the same age as as he is in the story. So I think there's kind of this weird dynamic going on where the perspectives are, I'm rooting myself in, in different people there. And now a lot of reviews of the movie have mentioned that it has this kind of dreamlike or almost fabulistic quality to it. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what you intended the tone of the movie to to be and also how you kind of manifest that. Because it's it's not like anything, you know, weird or surreal happens, but there's something gentle about it. It does feel like a memory in a way. What were you going for with that? I felt like I had different options for how I might approach this. And I thought that going different ways would change the way that anyone would encounter this. Um, for instance, if, it, if it's too realistic in a way that creates almost like a social drama. And this film isn't meant to be something like that. I kind of was going back to the idea of watching something I love about Mizoguchi films is that they feel like a folktale. They feel like they're supposed to be dreamlike. And that's sort of the way that I aired on this. How do I create these feelings of mysticism or magic as we go through the story and invest in the idea in the story that, you know, David has troubles with his dreams. You know, he's, he's worried about his dreams. Uh, his dreams make him wet, wet the bed. Uh, so in a way, he's contending with his dreams. And, and it's a memory piece. So I thought that they all kind of worked hand in hand in that way. And now, as you mentioned, the, the story is one of assimilation, but in some ways, it's assimilation on more than one front. It's like the the family is assimilating into the community, but also somehow the members of the family are assimilating into the family unit. It's both about how they sort of come together as a family and then step forward as a family into the community. How did you kind of balance that out or how did you feel about that as a a thematic in the movie? I I really like the way you put that. The way that I was wanting to handle the idea of assimilation was to strip away this feeling of culture being a divisive thing and instead showing that there's something much more human in the way that we separate ourselves from each other. Um, And that that can happen maybe in a more intense way within the home than it can between us and our surrounding neighborhood or or communities, especially with what's been going on in our country and and just thinking about divisiveness in general. I kind of wanted to take a look at things a lot more intimately in a way. And there, there are things in this film that speak not only to my feelings about how I saw that play out with my family growing up, this like interior divisiveness that is natural to all of us, but also to the way that that plays out in my own life and the things that I'm trying to work through as well. Because there's a moment where another little boy, a white boy, asks young David, he says, why is your face so flat? And for an audience, I think it's a very shocking moment, but David takes it in. He's not offended. He's not upset. He's like a little bit confused. And ultimately, those two boys become friends. Tell me a little bit about that moment and what that moment meant to you. Um, for me personally, if, if I were to speak very much from my, the vantage point of my memories, my first day of school in, in Lincoln, Arkansas, a little kid came up and asked me that question. And I thought, well, that's a weird kid who thinks that my face is flat. I remember 
maybe five minutes later, another kid asked me the same exact question. And then five minutes later, another kid asked me that question. And then I started to realize that, oh, there's some difference here in me and them. But that was one of the memories that I was working with in the story. But when I look back on these guys who asked me these things, like I don't think of them as jerks. I don't think of them in a negative way. Like we ended up becoming best friends. So that was just, you know, one of the observations that I was feeling within uh, writing this story. And tell me a little bit about just, especially for a a relatively low-budget movie, creating sort of the period aspects of the story. I myself grew up in the the Midwest in, in kind of the same time. I grew up in Kansas. And there were so many things, you know, the clothes, the car, so many things in the film felt so familiar to me. And for, you know, a, a modest movie, was that, was that a challenge? It was a big challenge to get, to get those things. The good thing for us, our, our production designer, her name is Yongok ok Lee. Um, she's an immigrant from Korea. And she hasn't spent that much time in the Midwest, but her, her research is incredible. And she did a lot, a lot of scouring different flea markets and places within um, the Tulsa area, Oklahoma City area as well. And just found all these different things. And she had a knack for knowing what is super American, what is super regional, and brought all those things together for our set. It was a challenge in that we didn't have much money for this film. It's a miracle that, that we were able to get all the things that we needed, the trailer home, all these different details, because we wanted to, to tell it right. At the same time, we didn't want this to be a big period piece where anyone's getting nostalgic and looking at, you know, different items and, and wondering how, how did they pull that off? You know, we just knew that it needed to recede into the background a little bit as the family plays out the crux of the drama. Also, for me personally, one of the, the things that really got me and that you don't see that often is simply the fact that the wilderness was never that far away. Whenever they were sort of like in town, you felt like they were never really that far from undeveloped land, from that, that big empty farmland where they were living. And that was one of the things that you just don't see that often. Usually people like are in the country or they're in the city. You never get that sense that like the country's not that far away. Mm, that's exactly right. And I don't know if that's your experience growing up, but that was kind of the town where I lived. Our, our town was like 1,400 people. And the funny thing is they have a sign that says city limits and population 1,400. And we lived outside of the, those city limits. We were near the woods uh, where we lived. It's in the Ozark Mountains, and it's a very wild area where you have creeks and rivers and and ponds, places, you know, that are just so pristine and, and beautiful and wild. But, you know, at the same time, everything is in driving distance, and you have to drive everywhere to get to various things. But um, one thing is, you know, things like hospitals are far away, so that's a reality that, that you deal with uh, when you're living in places like that. And that shows up in the film. And now the father in the movie, played by Stephen Yun, you know, he struggles so hard and he's so committed to making this farm that he started work. And on the one hand, there's maybe a metaphor there of, you know, growing these Korean vegetables in American soil. But I'm wondering, for the character, and I don't know if this was true for your father, why do you think that farm was so important to him? What was it that made this idea of, like, starting this farm 
matter to him so much? Um, we even had a longer backstory that we had in the film for him where he talks about the land that he had lost in Korea as a young man during, during the war, that his father had lost some land over there. And so that he had dreamt of coming to the U.S. and starting something. And, and we had had that in there. And that, on a more specific level, might explain his motivations. But we felt like in that instance, injecting that specific element was maybe detrimental to the film in a way. If you separate yourself, I mean, sometimes these specific things can cause an audience to feel a little bit of separation from the main character. What I'm hoping is that people would just understand that this is his dream and we all have crazy dreams. We all are human beings with a, a, a strange thing that we think is going to rescue and save us for Jacob that's land and that's farming. And now the story is set in Arkansas, but you shot the movie in Oklahoma. And so you had a, a crew that had Korean-Americans, Koreans, and folks like from Tulsa. Just what was that like on set? Like, were there instances of language barriers or culture clashes just happening on set? Uh, the set was one of my favorite things about this film because I felt like my two worlds were colliding. This, uh, you know, Asian-American, Korean-American sort of world and one of my friends would call it country cred, uh, that, that I could go and talk with any of the, the, the local crew and uh, immediately they would know, oh, he's, he's one of us, he's from here. Yeah, it, it was great. There, there were some crew members who joined up and started working on this film because they also grew up in trailer homes with, with uh, extended family. Uh, our, our gaffer, wonderful gaffer Steve Mathis, uh, grew up in Arkansas with his grandmother in a trailer home, and we bonded over that as we talked about this film. And then on the other side, we'd have the, the Korean-Americans who are trying to get uh, everything right to honor like the culture and that experience of immigration. And for the most part, I felt like we were all working really well together. The good thing was that the, the Tulsa crew, I felt like they were just equally invested in it. They weren't just trying to give us the space or trying to protect it. And, and help us make our story. But they, they were saying, okay, this is our story too. Um, so, so it was great. And then what was it like as well, just in casting the movie where you had both Korean American actors and Korean actors, what was it like sort of bringing them together? It was not so difficult given the actors because they're just, these guys are incredible. All of them were so generous to each other and uh, were, were so incredible about helping our younger actors, Alan and Noel, do their best because um, the older actors, they're, they're all very experienced and uh, so impeccably trained that they, they kind of knew what these two younger actors needed. In a way, it felt like family, I, I felt. You know, it, it was kind of fitting with the film. Because the actress, Yuan Yu Jung, who plays the grandmother in the film, she's like a big star in Korea, if I'm Correct. And was was it, in some ways, I'm wondering, like, was she the most difficult person to sort of like cast and schedule and sort of get to Oklahoma to make the movie? It wasn't too hard for her. We, we were very fortunate with her that she had taken a break from acting for a year and she was kind of resting up. And this was the project she chose to come back and, and work again. Um, so we were very fortunate about that. The hardest to schedule was honestly Yeti. Most actresses are booked out a year in advance. So she was already booked on a drama that was going for a long time. And they like to block out a chunk of time 
to keep you available, even if they're not filming. And uh, this production had had her booked all the way up to the point where Stephen would kind of have to start on another project as well. Uh, that that was I, I was feeling so much despair about about this at the time, but we managed to just sneak in this sliver of time in in July and August by pushing Stephen a little bit towards dinner and then pushing Yeti a little bit towards breakfast and and having this little sliver of time in which uh, all of them could work together. On top of that, we had to do this before school started for Alan and Noel because once school started, then the shooting hours change and. Uh, our budget wouldn't be able to handle an onset teacher and, and you know, all, all those different things as well. It was a miracle. And now tell me a little bit more about working with Alan Kim. I mean, you, at Sundance, you know, he had these cowboy outfits. He was extremely dapper. He won over every room he went into. You obviously had already shot the movie with him. You you knew him. Did you have any idea that's what was going to happen? Like, did you expect for him to sort of like become as much of a star and a sensation at Sundance as he did? <laughs> no, you know, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> it, it all made sense to me when I saw him with the cowboy boots and the cowboy hat and he walked out uh, of the hotel room. And that, that's when I just thought, okay, something, something big's about to happen to this kid because there's no way anyone's going to leave him alone. Yeah, the way that he would even work the crowd, it, it was quite incredible for a seven-year-old. And I've heard Steven say that it was very meaningful to him that he felt like this was such an American story and yet it was being told in the Korean language. Do you feel that same way? And was there ever anyone, you know, along the way who tried to convince you to not make the film in Korean? Early on, I kind of had the anxieties myself that maybe I need to be doing something with more English because I wasn't sure if I'd be able to actually get funding for this. Uh, Knowing that it's a project that's neither here nor there in terms of how do you normally categorize a film in foreign language versus, you know, an international feature, all these different things. And once Plan B was on board and A24, I had written my script to be able to go one way or the other, either invest in the Korean or just try to make it English. Christina Oh at Plan B, she's she's also a Korean-American child of, of immigrants, and she really said, okay, we can we can do this. We can make the fight and make the case. And and get this film to reflect our own experiences. And I got to say, she she was a real advocate for that. And uh, hats off to her, because I feel like we did it right. And this was the way that it needed to be. And I'm glad we didn't have to compromise. And what has it meant for you to see the film just be embraced the way that it has been, considering that I would imagine when you were growing up, you probably didn't see yourself on screen. You didn't see your experiences reflected on screen very often. What has it meant to you to see this story in particular be embraced the way that it has? It it matters so. Uh, I mean, I, I, it it feels surreal is the first thing I, I got to say. In that, it does feel like I am seeing myself on screen in a way that I've never seen because obviously it's my story, it's my memories, and all these different things. And then to see how that connects with other people, that's been truly incredible. Just to like qualify all that, like I at the same time, I feel like I see myself on screen all the time with with other films, even if they're not uh, Korean American, even if they're coming from Africa or coming from Iran. You know, there there's so many films that I just see myself so intimately and deeply 
in. And that was a goal with this one um, to, to just try to present a human story um, to show that, you know, we're not, we're not that different. Because you mentioned Mizuguchi earlier. Are there any sort of films or filmmakers that were like specific or direct influences on making Minari? In a way, I'm wondering if the influences in the film were American filmmakers, Korean filmmakers, or even kind of world cinema filmmakers. Yeah, there, there were a number of, uh, for sure, when I was preparing and trying to figure this film out. Rosalini was a huge one when I was uh, doing the writing of the story, um, both for Stromboli. Uh, you know, you, you have the husband and, and wife dynamic in which the wife is brought to an island where she didn't want to be. Also, a uh, voyage to Italy, you see the disintegration of a marriage and somehow it comes together at the end in a weird, miraculous way. There's a spiritual dynamic to his films that I just, uh, they, they just speak to me so deeply. And uh, that's something that I really leaned heavily into. And then Ozu for the family stuff, uh, that, that was something that we talked about a lot on set, especially with Lockie, the DP, and how you create like an intimate family drama. And to be honest, a, a feeling that um, we were going for with, with Lockie, the DP, and with uh, Harry, the editor, and with uh, Emil, our, our composer, Yongok, our, our production designer, we, we paid attention to old Hollywood classics of the frontier, um, old westerns, um, in which the land is, is such an important element. Films like Giant, films like Big Country. We felt like this film is meant to contain the spirit of those films. It was recently announced that you're going to be making a live-action remake of the Japanese film, animated film, Your Name. And considering where you were when you sort of started on Minari, that feeling of you may not even get to make another film, it must be so exciting and gratifying to feel yourself sort of propelled forward, to know that you're going to be making another film after this one. Yeah, for sure. It's it's uh, it's super gratifying. It's, it's I didn't expect any of this to happen. Obviously, for it to happen during these times has tempered it in a way um, and, and made me feel very sober about it. But at the same time, I mean, just, just to have these opportunities. I am that kid from Arkansas who <laughs> grew up in a trailer home. So it, it is unreal. That was great. You know, one thing I liked about that conversation, Mark, is that Lee began the work of making this film by writing down memories, 80 of them. And then this all started to take shape for him. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I'm I'm also from the Midwest. And so a lot of those visual memories, there are images in the movie that were really struck a chord with me as well. But then in the movie, you know, Lee draws them out into being about these larger themes about, you know, assimilation, the American dream, even farming. It's really just remarkable filmmaking. I really can't wait to see that film. It's on my list for this week. What have you been watching? Uh, well, I recently watched a movie that just came out on HBO Max, Judas and the Black Messiah. We're going to have the director of that. Shaka King is actually going to be on the show in a few weeks. And, you know, it's the story of Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. He was uh, murdered by the authorities in his apartment at only the age of 21. And it's just, it's an astonishing story, but has these just remarkable performances by both Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, and then also uh, Lakeith Stanfield as William O'Neill, the man who sort of betrays him as he's an informant for the FBI. And then also the actress Dominique Fishback, 
who plays Fred Hampton's fiance, she's terrific too. So it's a political thriller. There's a, a substantial romantic story to it. There's this whole saga of like personal responsibility and betrayal. Like there's just so much in that movie. It's really, really exciting. What about you? Well, you know, I've been watching Framing Britney, which is about the life and career of Britney Spears. You know, we often, when we see docu-series, they're usually multiple parts and we wish like a lot of times they could be two episodes or just one episode. This was one where I actually wish there were multiple parts to it. Like I felt like there was still a lot more to dig into. And it was definitely a tough watch. Like when you see the timeline of it all, because in the moment you don't see it that way. Right. And then to see the sort of sequence of events that sort of led to some of these moments for her, it was just eye opening. And it's hard not to sort of reflect on your own part in the whole system of it all. I don't know. What did you think? Well, that definitely, I, you know, I think for us as people who are in the media, the way that the documentary takes a really hard look at how she was treated by by the media and the way that she was portrayed and the way that had an effect on her and it, it added up. And so in some ways, you know, when she was having these sort of episodes and these sort of really down periods in her life, the way people really sort of attacked her fiercely then, it became this sort of self-generating cycle. And it definitely makes you sort of step back and, you know, as a member of the media worry, like, have you ever been a part of something like that? Should you be doing something different in the past? Should you be doing something different now? And then the whole other aspect of the story, which is Free Britney, which has to do with the conservatorship that she now lives under, and whether that's fair to her, whether it's doing her more harm than good. And it's interesting how the, I mean, in really only a little over an hour, it's not a long documentary at all, the, the film sort of combines all these these different ideas around the real person and the concept of Britney Spears. Well, and it's interesting, too, because there's all these sort of thing pieces that have come out from it, like sort of looking at our part in all this, like the media mea culpas. It's also like the sort of renewed frenzy makes me just as nervous. It's like we're sort of charging at the case again in a way that feels just as unhealthy. I don't know. It's It has me thinking a lot about it. But, you know, another film that I watched that I wanted to note was Supernova with Stanley Tucci, who I talked to this morning, not for the podcast. Sorry, listeners. But that was a really heartbreaking film. Did you watch that one? You know, I still haven't had a chance to to see that. It's one that I, I really like to, to catch up with. I'm always a fan of Stanley Tucci. And, and I, you know, in this, he's with... Colin Firth. It's a movie. I'm glad to hear that you liked it because it's a movie I've been curious to see. Yeah, really heartbreaking. Um, Stanley plays a man who's going through early onset dementia, and it's just such a heartbreaking thing. And now before we go, Yvonne, who who are you talking to next week? Well, I spoke with Kaylee Cuoco, who produces and stars in The Flight Attendant, which is a murder mystery, also about a young woman grappling with her own trauma. And Kaylee sort of takes me back to the night when she was browsing Amazon and she stumbled upon the book that became the HBO hit series. And I look, I'm like, what is this? And I, you know, on Amazon, had they'll give you like two sentences on what the book is. And it really was two cents. It was like fun, drunk flight attendant Cassie wakes up in the wrong hotel, wrong bed next to a dead man. What now? It was something like that. I got this huge chill like down my spine. And I thought that could be a good show. Well, I think Kaylee was on to something. The, the flight attendant now has Golden Globe and SAG Award 
nominations, and I certainly can't wait to hear your interview with her. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Yvonne Villarreal, and by my colleague, Mark Olson. Our producer is Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin, and he also made our theme song. If you liked The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe, because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.